0: G'day. Welcome to Lunch Money. Uh, you are live with your online and social media home for special situations, workouts, and capital-raising professionals. Uh, my name is Nick Samios. I'm the fund manager uh, and director here at Hermes Capital, and I am your Lunch Money host. Uh, and today, what a fun Lunch Money we have for you. Uh, we're going to be talking about outsmarting the crooks and con men. Uh, I, I tweeted uh, a little bit earlier today when I was promoing that uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, headlines in the last week about uh, about all sorts of uh, uh, financial malfeasance. And uh, I, I said, uh, don't become a headline. And when I mean that, don't, I, I don't mean don't be one of the crooks. I mean, don't be one of the victims. Uh, and hopefully our special guest, Wayne Gilbert, will help, uh, help you avoid uh, that today. Before we introduce our topic more formally and introduce uh, Wayne, I'd like to remind you, uh, as usual, to uh, ask a question. We're live, and so you have this unique opportunity to ask a question and to get one of these uh, special lunch money mugs. Now, you'll notice that we've got this special Aegean Blue edition um, for uh, anyone asking live questions uh, today. So allow me to introduce uh, Wayne Gilbert. Wayne is uh, integrity principal at PKF here in Sydney. Uh, he's got 35 years as an investigator uh, including in the police force and uh, also uh, uh, at accounting firms such as PKF and uh, he's seen all sorts of uh, fraud misconduct and corruption uh, he's also uh, he's also got experience uh, hunting down criminals as well so uh, without further ado I'd like to introduce Wayne Gilbert. G'day, Wayne How are oh, you G'day, been?
1: Nick. Um, I'm well, mate. So excited to be here to talk about one of my favourite topics.
0: Fantastic. Well, I mean, the, the crime and fraud, it's, uh, it's all very salacious, isn't it? It's a bit hard to... to it's one of those things you can't look away from. Um, tell me two things. Firstly, what what is your role at, uh, at PKF and what's the sort of stuff that keeps you busy lately?
1: Okay, so, so essentially I head up uh, the integrity practice in Sydney as part of our broader national team um our remit is around some risk management uh, investigations into fraud and other employee misconduct and a large part of what we do also is um, managing whistleblower hotlines for some of our clients as well
0: okay um, well let's...
1: some some of the things i guess that keep us busy and some of the things we're doing and one of the things that never goes away is uh, fraud and corruption in the procurement process so we've got uh, some matters ongoing in relation to how people deal with major procurements and um, and some of the issues that occur as a result of that, uh, and we've also got some behavioural matters going on. And you know, behaviour, whilst some people don't classify that as fraud, we do because we look at fraud as a very broad bucket and. Um, Misconduct in the workplace costs businesses a lot of money and bullying and sexual harassment, I think, are are very topical as well at the moment and they cost businesses a lot of money uh, over the long term.
0: And uh, so you're, I guess you're brought in when there's a, a PKF client somewhere in Australia that's got an issue. I know that you've also got a broader network of uh, the smaller accounting practices. Obviously, not you know your, your suburban accounting practice can't afford to to have uh, an integrity you know, principles such as yourself. So is it does it work like that also?
1: Well, it's not necessarily just our PKF clients as such. Uh, people reach out to us from all uh, necks of the woods to investigate issues. But on the other side of that, uh, we also do proactive work where we actually educate workforces in relation to some of the signs to look for, red flags, etc., and educate the workforce to be uh, on what to be on the lookout for.
0: Okay. Now, look. I've got a little montage to introduce. Uh, this is our next next uh, session. So let's just have a quick look at that.
1: The case of the 49-year-old who pretended to be a financial whiz to fleece $25
0: million. ...allegations by anti-money laundering agency AUSTRAC that Westpac failed to report 23 million potentially suspicious transactions. Mr
1: Greensill, are you a fraudster? No, Mr
0: Connor, I am not it's uh it's yeah so you're in a you're in a very hot space there uh, there's no question about it it's in in the news a lot of late um, I guess i I have a theory that uh, you know whilst the economy has done pretty well during the, the pandemic uh, there is no doubt that at some point in time uh, we are going to feel a lot more of the financial consequences and perhaps that's going to perhaps as a result of that we're going to see more uh, financial malfeasance? You, you'd concur with that?
1: Oh, oh definitely. Um, we're, we, we're seeing some of it at the moment uh, with, you know, people working remotely and their behaviours whilst they're working remotely. And uh, I guess one thing that comes to mind is, you know, people uh, filling in a timesheet indicating that they're working when they have no footprint on their work systems, etc., and they're actually not Working, so we've we've been uh, investigating a few of those.
0: Wow! So is that is that a, is that an extra is that an issue with working from home? are you suggesting, or
1: well, I think it's just an issue with people in general that you know some people work well and others don't, um, uh, and there is that um, tendency that if no one's looking, um, you don't necessarily abide by all the conditions that are there for you. Uh, at work. So, uh, you know, it's a minority of people, but we still see it. And um, thankfully, some employers take note and they take action, which is a really good thing that um, people actually look for these issues and then take action because um, if you just let it slide, that's the position that you accept from your workforce that um, that nothing will happen to me if I just continue on with my behaviour.
0: Mm, that's interesting. well look, we're going to come back to behavior, and I, I, I'm just going to jot down the word habitual there. Um, it's interesting my my wife um, Make, has made jokes in the past about, you know, how do you know your sales reps aren't uh, Uber driving, for example? And I'd like to think that the, that they wouldn't be doing that because of the opportunity cost. But uh, um, now it's interesting. You mentioned procurement fraud for a little bit earlier. Uh, I remember I had a client in the printing business a number of years ago, and there was a, a marital issue. You know, husband and wife uh, had effectively busted up and they were both working together out of necessity. But he was... I'm just trying to think how this worked... He would do deals with his mates who, for example, might be supplying paper, say, and they would, uh, they would overcharge on the invoices and, uh, and, and sort of kick back to him. Is that, is that the sort of procurement fraud you're talking about?
1: Well, well is well, that? And then there's undeclared conflicts of interest where uh, it's basically jobs for your mates. So you uh, tie up a deal with a supplier who you know. Uh, and not necessarily test the market as you should, and uh, they start um, invoicing your organisation, and and potentially there's a kickback there, or it's just um, looking after your mates.
0: Yeah, that looking after your mates is, uh, I mean, that's a real fine line, isn't it? I mean, particularly saying professional services. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's interesting uh, the quid pro quos. Uh, you know, you you know, there are certain Financial services, without going sort of naming names, where you're not supposed to be playing commissions or kickbacks, for example. But uh, you know, where does quid pro quo start and kickbacks, uh, kickbacks, kick in?
1: Well, I think it's all around the processes and procedures that you have in place, and you know, at all times, really, your de- your dealings with at a business level need to be on an appropriate business level. You know, kickbacks. Uh, are not something that should really enter into the equation at all, and they shouldn't be yeah. tolerated. Um, yeah, but just just on that, uh, Nick, one of the things around procurement fraud is, um, you know, around the controls within an organisation and we see, you know, employees with an organisation right up to and including CFOs and CEOs able to bypass the controls and um, the onboarding of, of, of vendors. Uh, and this is a very important control, the onboarding and control around onboarding of vendors. and slip a company that they may be associated with into the system and start sending invoices through for services that haven't been rendered and taking money out of the business that way. Uh, that's well, that, a very that, common fraud.
0: That's very interesting. In fact, uh, I'll just flash up a headline, which quite frankly the story was too convoluted for me to understand. The ex con, the CEO on the dodgy invoice, uh, was a story in the paper on the 12th. What today? Today's the 16th, so on Tuesday. And this was a story where um allegedly allegedly of course there was uh the ceo of a football club i think it was was looking to buy into a business and there's questionable allegedly questionable invoices were then passed through to the club that they were going to pay for that you know so th- i guess that's the sort of thing you're talking about i mean that's obviously one one uh permutation
1: yeah and it doesn't necessarily have to be up at that uh, level of CEO. It can be anyone within the business who understands the environment and then can bypass that environment. Um, and, and a lot of times that's what happens. People bypass the environment and no one wants to speak up about it.
0: Look, whilst we're talking about headlines, there's obviously the big story about the football boss at the centre of alleged Westpac fraud uh, and supposedly he was going to be returning to Greece I think this I'm not sure what date that article is from but uh, he uh, the latest I heard this morning was that he had COVID so he had every intention of coming back to Australia apparently um, you were saying uh, when we spoke earlier that uh, y- yeah you think the chances of him returning are pretty close to nil
1: well if you're, if you're a betting my, man yeah well only through my previous experience and if he doesn't Uh, return voluntarily, I think the chances of getting back to this country are probably um, slim to zero.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you'd have to ask yourself, uh, you know, if you had $400 million in your back pocket, my understanding is that And and, and allegedly, none of this has been proven as yet, but the newspapers are talking... Numbers that I've got from the newspapers, there's, uh, I think, 200 and million with Westpac, $100 million with Sumitomo, uh, $9 million with Société Générale, and then there's another, a fintech that I hadn't heard of before, but uh, called Hum, that there's $12 million. So if you've got any of that money... uh, you know, converted into the old drachmas or euros, uh, then you would have to wonder why you come back. But you've got some experience chasing people to Greece?
1: Yes. I mean, um, going back quite some time now, but uh, had a person who was involved in a uh, homicide here in Sydney that fled to Greece before we had enough information upon which to charge him. And we made several trips to Greece. Um, he was... Uh, a, had greek heritage his parents were born in greece and uh, he claimed his greek heritage which you're allowed to do and of course under most uh treaties that we have with most countries uh, it's at the discretion of that country as to whether they um, give up their nationals and the greek authorities chose not to on this occasion and um whilst he uh whilst he didn't get away scot-free we did try him in greece but it was a very very difficult uh process uh, and he was subsequently acquitted in Greece, but um, that's another story for another day.
0: Wow. Okay. I did. I did. I was telling that story to one of my partners the other day, and he said, well, "What happened in the end?" Okay. Well, so that's what happened, more or less. The short version is that he was acquitted, but you got to spend some time in in Greece anyway, uh, which wouldn't have been too tough, I'm sure. I'm just wondering. You know, that you, we've got some topics that we wanted to talk about, and. Uh, I'm not sure which one of these, uh, you know, whether or not we're going to be talking about culture or behaviour, but I'm I'm wondering what goes on at a bank, and let's not talk specifically about this, but we're a bank, we've got someone who's introducing, you know, business to us in the, in the order of hundreds of millions, and, I mean, how is it that something like this in this day and age gets passed? I, and and, and I, I'm imagining someone at a bank saying, listen, I found this thing that's a bit questionable, and someone else saying, well... You can't ask him that. What are you going to do, accuse him of fraud? Uh, You you know, is this, how does does it happen in this day and age?
1: Well, I think that it, you know, it's been going on forever and ever. And if we're talking about asset leasing and um, issues that happen, I mean, been involved in a few of those going back several years. And I think it's really about the controls that are in place and how hard one kicks the tyres and what that goes back into the risk appetite of the organisation about, well, at what point do we actually get up off a chair and go out and investigate whether those assets exist versus um, some um, small due diligence around that.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, supposedly in this case, uh, you know, the people who were supposedly receiving the benefit of the goods just didn't, didn't know anything about it. Uh, and, and I suppose if you get away with one, you get away with ten, you get away, you know, and these things escalate. I mean, it, it reminds me of when I was at AGC back in the 80s and the, the classic was that someone would, at one of the officers working for AGC would come up with a dummy loan lending themselves money. And then, of course, in order to make the payments on that dummy loan, they'd have to write another dummy loan. And then they'd need to write another dummy loan to make the payments. And it wasn't until they went on holidays that, that they'd get caught out. But, you know, these are all war stories. You know, there's the war... I don't know if you remember the case of Tonal. Tonal was uh, one of those big equipment frauds. There was the John Friedrich story. What was the name of his company? Um, National... Uh, wasn't National Security. National Safety Council. Um, I mean, so they're all... These are all war stories that... You know, that the people must be. Uh, I know that when I was working in large institutions, we were telling these stories to each other all the time. So, how does it, how, you know, what is it in the culture that that, that, that allows this to, to keep going on?
1: Well, I don't know that it's typically what I would refer to as culture. I think it's more in the risk management and um, how organizations deal with risk. And as I said, w- at what point? Does an organisation go out and kick the tires? And I talk about kicking the tires because it reminds me of a large fraud on the mid-north coast of New South Wales around buses, and um, the organisation were getting loans on all of these buses that didn't actually exist. And um, you know, one one of the issues was that there was an insider in the organisation that was was uh, assisting. By just passing off that the inspections had been done, so these guys were just recycling VIN numbers, uh, and no real testing was ever done to see whether the assets existed.
0: I know that uh, you like to talk about trust being no substitute for control. Is that is that sort of this is this what we're talking about here?
1: Well, no, I think that's just out and out fraud. Um, you yeah. know, with an insider. Uh, the, the, who's not actually doing their job for the organisation and not actually going to check uh, that the assets actually exist before the money leaves the the uh, organisation?
0: Okay. Well, look, let's let's talk about uh, some of the uh, the specific areas that that we're going to talk about. Ta- ta- let's talk about the the corporate culture. Now, you you talk about the speak up culture. What's that about?
1: Well, I think that. It's the culture that allows people to actually feel free to have a voice within an organisation and speak up about whether it's fraud, whether it's about bad behaviour and feel that they've been listened to and that some action will come of it without retribution to them. And uh, if we look back through the history of uh, whistleblowers uh, in this country and probably even globally, we can see that we're not there yet. Uh, in in many instances and people do um, find it difficult at times to speak up without the fear of retribution and um, you know us running whistleblower hotlines where we get people that come through and and they they definitely want to remain anonymous because they're concerned about their role if it's known that they're speaking up.
0: You know there's the old saying if you come for the king you best not miss so I suppose uh, I, I know myself, I remember very early on in my career having an issue with one of my bosses and I went and spoke to his boss and, uh, you know, basically just wanted to brush it under the carpet and dismiss it. And I, I soon realised that, you know, it was more jeopardy to me to to sort of pursue it any further than it was to anybody else. Uh, I can't remember what the specifics were or how serious it might have been. But so how do you encourage the right culture? To, I mean, you know, how do you, how do you encourage people? Well, what do you say to people to encourage them to to blow the whistle, to to put their mind at ease that they're not going to be uh, victims along the way.
1: Well, I think that, um, well, Australia's come a long way in that they've passed some legislation that came into effect about a year ago now in relation to the protection for people coming forward. But it's really about what one of your guests a couple of weeks ago said, Dr Peter Ellis, about culture and the tone at the top. I mean, it shouldn't really matter whether you're the last person hired or the person that's been within the organisation for 20 years, whether you're the CEO or the CFO. People look to the uh, role models of, and the behaviours that, that people put out there and, you know, um, you've got to walk the walk um, and that's, you know, what CEOs need to do. And it reminds me even going back to um, the Coles-Meyer fraud, which is a multi-million dollar fraud which of which brian quinn who was the ceo of coles back in those days and paul Coglin, who was the chief prosecutor on that matter uh, his quotes a are, are gem i think he said when they saw their boss with his nose in the trough they just got right in alongside of him and, and that's that whole culture of the top well if it's good enough for him it's good enough for me
0: okay uh look I, i'd actually like you to tell us a little bit more about that but before you before we do go there, uh, I would just like to remind uh, anyone who's watching us live that uh, this uh, Aegean blue interior coffee mug is yours if you uh, if you pop us a question, and it also uh, in the spirit of. Uh, being able to speak freely. uh, I encourage you to share, like, subscribe our podcast and uh, live stream. And uh, don't forget to hit the notification bell as well. That way, uh, when we produce fresh content, uh, you will be reminded. So tell me, are you able to tell us a little bit more about that specific case?
1: About Brian Quinn? Well, Brian Quinn was the uh, CEO of Coles um, quite a long time ago now. And he stole millions and millions of dollars from Coles, and he, you know what was revealed during his trial down in Victoria uh, was a person who just had no scruples and no real ethical uh, compass because yeah you know, he was so arrogant that I think he uh, one of the key things that happened was he he built this massive home down in Victoria uh, and he put a. He put more than one new kitchen in it because when he built one new kitchen, apparently his wife didn't like one of them, so they scrapped it and built another one. So just totally kind of reprehensible behaviour and total lack of integrity in in dealing with what what was the money that belonged to his organisation.
0: Well, sometimes big shots think they're above the law. You think because you're a celebrity that somehow the law doesn't apply to you that you're above the law? <laughs> I guess, I guess, uh, maybe, 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 there was a little bit of that going on. I suppose they, I mean, do they think that no one's going to have the, you know, have the temerity or the guts to come after them?
1: Well, I, I think so, but, um, I, I think that uh, he was able to get away with it. And not only was he able to get away with it, but uh, the rest of his comrades joined him and, uh, you know, uh, if you've got your whole executive team doing that, well, you've got no chance.
0: Uh, now, I've got a question here from a anonymous LinkedIn user. Let's just see what that says. What advice would you give to an institution that focuses their confidence on the ability of their customer applicant to repay their finance as opposed to if an asset or end product actually exists, mostly if it is unfeasible for an institution to kick tires in every asset finance transaction? Hmm.
1: Absolutely. And it's really around um, risk management there. I think it's really about at what point and what due diligence do you need to do in relation to um, finance. And I think too, um, if you're talking about the ability of their customer or their applicant to repay, um, well, that's, to me, that's a given in any kind of responsible lending uh, thing that they're the checks and balances that should be done. Um, not that that stops people from uh, putting forward false documentation to secure loans, but uh, that's just another story. But you know that that due diligence process around responsible lending, uh, in itself, generally takes care of that.
0: Yeah, it's funny. You know, you would think these days, with uh, with technology, <coughs> you'd be able to circumvent. Uh, a lot of this stuff you know if they didn't get the goods did they at least get the invoice i mean you know uh, it, where the, where there's no goods involved at all there's there's surely got to be better ways um tell me uh so we've talked a little bit about the, the speak up just just quickly so do you do, do you sort of provide an outsource of whistleblower hotline i mean it, do, do you set up a hotline for your customers that you know a phone rings next to your desk tell, tell us about that
1: yeah, well we do a few things around whistleblowing we um, we definitely have uh, a hotline we've got about 30 clients um, with an independent hotline so they get their own number and we also have um, a, a link to uh, so that uh, people can report online um, some people not that we get too many these days even we still get the odd letter that comes through but they're few and far in between uh, so we run a very secure back-end portal, so we receive the calls, um, we take those calls and then we pass that information back on to those uh, people so that they can deal with it. Uh, we also can triage that information and assess it for clients if they would like us to. And of course, we can also investigate those matters. Um, and and we're also working closely with a number of people in which I think is the most important part I think the the new legislation that came through in relation to whistleblowers said that you need to have a whistleblower policy but there are some real issues behind whistleblower policies where you can get into trouble and that is how you handle uh, those disclosures when they come through and how you maintain confidentiality and prevent reprisals. And we're working with a number of people now to help them build better systems behind the scenes to help them manage that process better.
0: Okay. I mean, that sounds like a legal quagmire, I must say, with all sorts of liabilities flying in every direction. Look, uh, Chris Slack uh, has uh, given us a bit of a follow-up question on this alleged uh, fraud uh, with respect to Westpac. And it's interesting because another friend of mine asked this as well. Um, you know obviously this fraud you know it could be it could be in the order of 400 million dollars spread over a number of financiers, and who knows if more won't pop up and uh, as I said to you another one popped up today but I I wonder what impact this will have uh, generally across the market you know where I think again I don't there's this thing where there's one thing where the bank is lending directly to the customer itself but then there's another thing when they're when they're lending to their customers' customers, really. I think that was what was going here with, with this Westpac situation. Westpac wasn't lending, as far as I know, to uh, uh, to, to Pappas' organisation. It was lending to his customers who were buying his services. So, you know, then there's this whole thing of, well, is that second-tier market that is getting money from banks and then having that money provided to uh, to their customers? Oh, I mean, do do you... It, do you do you think that you'll get people calling you asking you to help out in those situations?
1: Well, again, I think it's you, you never know uh, that there may be some major frauds identified um, uh, through that process. But again, look—you know, risk management's a moving feast, um, and you know where risks are identified, will people need to then go back to. Uh, to tin tax and look at well how does that impact on our business and what are we going to do to prevent this from happening to us kind of thing Um, and that should always be happening Uh, these things aren't static
0: all right. Well, thank you very much for your question there, Chris. Now we'll get one more question before we move on to our next talking point. We've got Linda Lee. Thank you very much for your question, Linda. Hi, Wayne. Have you seen a decrease in disclosures coming through with more people working from home? So I don't know if this relates maybe to the whistleblowing type scenario. What? What? How, what, how does working from home impact these areas? Thank you very much, Linda, for your question. Uh,
1: no, we're pretty steady uh, in relation to disclosures because I think it's a f- it's a mixture of where people are still working on site uh, and people are working from home. So Uh, we've been pretty steady with uh, disclosures that are coming through our our lines over the COVID period.
0: Now, having said that, we were talking a little bit earlier before we went live. Uh, I was asking you about, um, you know, whether or not you thought that when we do see the financial consequences, and there will be financial consequences to the economy, just not yet, of this pandemic, you know, whether or not you think you'll see, uh, you know, an an increase in the level of... uh, Financial malfeasance. I think I gave you the quote of uh, um, an old friend of mine, Alan Kay, used to say, "People are as honest as they are profitable." And um, and you you said that you were reflecting on your experience from the GFC.
1: Yeah, and and the GFC. I think that uh, you know, following the GFC, twelve to eighteen months following the GFC, we saw uh, you know an uptick in fraud cases coming forward. But you know, like if you look at the statistics. And there's an organisation called the Certified Fraud Examiners who are a global organisation. And, you know, they talk about, um, you know, most fraud schemes take up to 18 months to come to the surface um, because we're not particularly good at identifying them. Um, and, you know, I always uh, caution where I have someone say to me, oh, there's no fraud here to be seen. Um, having that attitude tells me that, A, you're not looking, and, B, that you... Um, you generally have a very trusting attitude towards things and that there may be questions around the control environment. And the other thing is that you're not actually training people in what they need to look for. And, you know, that's one of the key things to prevent fraud. And even if it's not in a business sense, if it's in your personal sense, I mean, I'm the victim of fraud or attempted fraud overnight um, on my credit card. So, Uh, It can happen to anyone in any circumstance. And, you know, we talk about the Westpacs of the world and $200 million here and a $1 million there. But if we look at the impact of fraud, you know, $100,000 can be quite damaging dependent upon the size of the business.
0: Sure, sure, sure. I mean, look, I don't know how many times uh you know we're talking to someone who's got cash flow issues in their business and uh it's been the result of a bookkeeper you know who's, who's made off with uh, made off with some of the money or general manager or whatever and the the i mean I, you know I, I use the old uh, the old greek shopkeeper saying that you know uh, the owner's always got to keep an eye on the till listen we've got two Talking points. I, I don't want to run out of time to get to these, so let me just sure. uh, just move quickly to them. Uh, one of them was uh, on this. Uh, you, we were talking about email fraud. I think I've got a, a headline here. Uh, Might have been an older headline about email fraud. You were talking about. You know, you were, in this particular uh, article, it was talking about this thing where, for example, I know myself. I've received an email from my financial controller saying uh, that I need to pay a bill. Now, it's a bit odd because we're a pretty small organisation and the way it you know, was worded, uh, you know, it was obviously a fraudulent email. But I guess people are, uh, people are hacking into emails and seeing what the relationships people have with each other and maybe knowing, you know, getting a little bit of information to help them pull off one of these frauds.
1: Yeah, look, it's this is a massive global business. It's a billion dollar business, billion billion dollar business. Uh, business email compromise. Now, you have mentioned the CEO style fraud, where someone sends a direction internally for the for someone to facilitate a payment uh, on behalf of the CEO or CFO, etc. And you know they they still happen where some people don't talk to each other and the the payments get released uh, to uh, people. Uh, hacking into uh, email, and it might not be within your business. It might be uh, external to the business. They hack into a business transaction, and then they change some of the bank account details. They're not checked. And lo and behold, uh, uh, what was uh, assumed to be a legitimate payment is forwarded to a completely uh, foreign account. And uh, in general terms, that money goes pretty quickly. And if you're lucky, you might uh, get it clawed back. But in the world of um, you know, instantaneous uh, finance transactions. Uh, often, the money's gone.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me that they they do their homework and and understand the patterns. You know, if, I guess if they if they you now, as you say, they may only be hacking into someone else's email, but they're establishing the nature of communications and what sort of things. Uh, so, so you you get involved in that in in that sort of work as well.
1: Yes, we do. Um, we we're involved in that from time to time, and I think that you know one of the things that um, we need to be aware of is that it's not if you'll ever be the victim of cyber fraud, it's when you'll be the victim of cyber fraud, and you know you need to do a lot. Um, I, I, I I draw an analogy going back to it. You might remember the old Nigerian letter scams and the uh, yeah. and those kind of scams and you know, after they'd been well publicised, people still fell for those scams and still had that hope that, you know, that there was a bucket of money at the end of the the rainbow. Well, if you bring that back to cyber, um, you know, we should be training our people. If you receive an email that's unsolicited, don't open it or don't click on the link that's in it. But people still do, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and fraudsters are getting smarter. These um, cyber fraudsters are smarter. They now disguise um links that where they can download malware into your system into what looked like a pdf document but again the simple question the, the simple thing is if you've received a strange email that you weren't expecting and it's asking you to do stuff delete it because yeah. you know what because someone will contact you if it was actually that important
0: yeah, I saw I was re- in one of the articles I was reading uh, at Homework for this today, you know, you get those uh, angry emails, you know, if you don't pay this, uh, something terrible is going to happen. From the ATO, there's a lot of ATO uh, type scams. Uh, you know, I, I need to ask you because I, I did see, uh, you know, we, we saw, we, we captured a bit of what I would call fraud here last year, about this time last year, it was maybe for about forty or fifty thousand dollars, where uh, we'd been told to pay to a particular bank account, which we were told was the bank account of the ATO, uh, to pay to help a client meet meet a tax obligation. Now the money. You know, that night I got a phone call from our bank. It was an NAB. They were very, uh, I don't know what systems they're running there, but they have rung me and said, this payment's not, you know, not going to the ATO. So I don't know what they've, they've looked at the coding, you know, the narrative we put on the payment. And it turned out it was a fraud. Now, I reported that thing. I heard nothing. You know, no one's followed up on it. So, so at what level, and I know speaking to people in the insolvency trade, for example, you know, they often come across frauds, but if they, you know, sometimes it's just not worth reporting it because, you know, what's going to happen? At what le- I mean, should you report every single fraud, or is there a point where the authorities just aren't interested? If it's not a million bucks, they don't care? That's That seems to be the anecdotal case. What do you think?
1: Well, I think that there's an obligation to report. It's how much expectation you place on having small frauds investigated but if you don't report then people just don't know um, or the police and law enforcement around the country don't know what's going on and your small fraud might be uh, a, a part of a jigsaw puzzle of a much larger issue and you know it's, it's difficult um, and and saying that people aren't interested you know if you look at fraud and a lot of these external fraud and a lot of these scams you know they're perpetrated from someone who's sitting in a basement in Romania and I don't pick on Romania for anything but you know there's jurisdictional issues there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes in and it's very hard to commit resources for a you know a $50 fraud and you know there are those things that are really high volume low dollar type frauds and they're extremely difficult to investigate down to well you know Um, The bank caught it. Did the bank actually report that activity as a fraud or did they just take it as, well, we've actually prevented it so it hasn't gone through Uh, and we've done our job?
0: I think in this case they did. There was some level of reporting going on, and it's not the first time. I mean, that's specific circumstance. Look, the, the clock is running down. Um, I, I mean, just just out of curiosity, okay, so you're saying you've got an obligation to report every fraud. I mean, it is just a legal obligation anyway, and it could be just one. It might only be 50000 to you, but it could be part of some great big plot for, for, for millions and it might be the missing piece of information I suppose it helps the authorities catch the perpetrators but you know anecdotally you know it, at what level do you think ASIC picks up a file is it a is it you know a million bucks half a million bucks or well, vendors only or
1: well I'm not sure that it's an ASIC role as opposed to a law enforcement role um, right. various police jurisdictions around the country and they all have different resourcing and Different appetites for how they get involved in matters, so uh, it's difficult to say.
0: Okay, now look, I do want to before we sort of uh, wrap up. Uh, you were saying that uh, you also you, you, you were talking about crime in the workplace that is ostensibly non-financial, but can later on have serious financial impacts. And you were talking about bullying and 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 other uh, other other sorts of uh, uh, bad workplace behaviours. Did you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. Well, I think. Bullying and sexual harassment are very big and topical at the moment. Um, and, you know, we're even seeing them, you know, via means of people whilst they're they're not in the workplace, going back to that question before about, you know, uh, disclosures coming through, uh, where people are omitted from email trails and not invited to meetings and, uh, and the like. But down to really poor behaviours where you've got, uh, you know, and... Uh, people yelling at each other, people not treating each other with the appropriate respect. And it brings me back to a story where I was out actually investigating, um, you know, bullying behaviour and one person had made an allegation against another and then there were co, you know, cross allegations made about that other. But I actually witnessed this particular person where who had allegations made about having a stand up toe to toe. Uh, exchange with their supervisor. And the HR representative in that place was standing no more than three metres away from it and did nothing about it. And it's kind of like the behaviour was abhorrent. And and it's kind of like, well, you get what you stand for. So if you're prepared to walk past that kind of behaviour, that's what you get. And the other thing that bears that out is that You know, a lot of people that I spoke to during that investigation said, oh, that's just the way that person is. They've they've been here for years and they're just like that. But the behaviour shouldn't be tolerated. We need to stand up and do stuff about that because at the end of the day, there's probably 10 people that have left that workplace because of the behaviour of that person. That in itself has all the financial costs of rehiring and retraining and all of that. Plus, then there's all the morale and performance issues that go in with that. So, if you look at it and say, "Well, it's not a financial matter," um, they're huge financial matters. Plus, all the workers' compensation claims, etc., that come through.
0: Well, not to mention, not to mention that uh, you know, people who are being mistreated are going to be less incentivized to keep an eye out on all those other sorts of uh, malfeasance that we've talked about. You know, why should I speak up about this? You know, and all that sort of stuff. I think we we're talking about top-down culture. Uh, in any case, listen, we are, we are, uh, we're, we're actually out of time. So is there, i just sort of, uh, any, any sort of closing comments or closing thoughts that people watching this and they should be doing to make sure that they don't become victims?
1: Well, you know, you, you can only protect yourself so much from the external, but training, you should be training your workforce and what to look for. And in a real sense, look, they're the eyes and ears within your organization, and also promoting a culture that says it's okay for you to speak up I mean, and simply put you know in in a very short thing training people making them aware what they need to look for and ensuring that they do have a voice to speak up
0: Okay, well, uh, uh, Wayne Gilbert from uh, PKF. Thank you so much for your giving us uh, a view into your world and what it is that someone in your role uh, does uh, from day to day. And thanks for your advice and uh, and tips. Uh, we've got what have we got here. Outstanding session, Nick and Wayne from uh, from uh, our good friend Tony Doyle. Thank you very much for your comment there, Tony. And uh, thank you very much. Thanks to our uh, our viewers and uh, our listeners. And uh, we'll do it all again next week. Thank you and cheers. Amen.